Hello, my name is Uluwa Pelumi Demoye, creator of The Child Project. The Child Project aims to help others understand the issues children face around the world. Accompanied with each interview is a list of resources of ways you can help, as well as learn more about the topics discussed. Today we will be discussing how COVID-19 is affecting child advocacy. Today I'm here with Allison Wright. She works as a humanitarian policy and advocacy advisor at Plan International. Ms. Wright, may you please speak about your line of work and what you do as a humanitarian policy and advocacy advisor? Sure, thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, so I work for Plan International, which is an international um, child rights, um, humanitarian and development organisation, um, and we work in over 70 countries worldwide. Um, I work at the our global headquarters, which is based in the UK, but is is kind of work, I, I very much work globally um, across our offices. Um, so as you said, I'm the humanitarian policy and advocacy advisor, um, which means I lead our uh, policy and advocacy work on children's rights and gender equality um, across the what we term kind of humanitarian contexts and spaces. Um, so that's particularly working on issues around um, uh, related to children affected by humanitarian crises. So refugee children, children affected by armed conflict, uh, children experiencing disasters um, and uh, do the work around sort of um, identifying where we can advocate to ensure that their rights are upheld um, in you know humanitarian uh, policy uh, policy spaces um, in kind of the laws and policies that um, that govern humanitarian uh, contexts, um, but also within the the responses to those crises. Um, and I can talk a bit more about that <laughs> later if that would be useful. Um, so I, uh, you know, as part of my job, I collaborate very closely with colleagues um, who advocate at the United Nations, um, who work with um, with donor governments, um, so in you know countries like the US, UK, and Canada, and so on, um, but also with with country with with colleagues working in crisis disaster affected uh, countries, who work with their national governments to try to strengthen child rights um, in in some of those contexts. So that in a in a nutshell is is what I work on. I'm very happy to talk more about any of those areas. Yeah, thank you so much for, um, you know, expanding and explaining kind of what you do and the type of work that you do. Um, I'd love to know uh, what type of background is usually commonly seen in this line of work in order to what or what type of background would you say is needed or required to do this line of work? Yeah, that's a good question, because I think people come into this line of work from different from different backgrounds. Um, so uh, myself personally, um, I <laughs> I've had quite a quite a well, perhaps not a very typical route into this. I was actually originally a, a teacher. I was a high school teacher. It was my my first career, um, and then I actually went back to school. I did a master's program on uh, in international development um, and did did work on particularly on conflict and climate change as part of that. Um, uh, and then I've sort of so I've I've come in through a slightly different route. Um, 
and there but but many people come in through um through a background working within the humanitarian sector so perhaps on more on humanitarian programs um others come in through a more legal come in perhaps from a, a background in in law um and particularly human rights law um i've got colleagues who came in that way um some uh, study uh, engage more on sort of international relations um and come in from a, a more sort of international political relations kind of perspective so i think it it it, it attracts quite um, a wide range of, of people from different backgrounds. Um, I mean, in terms of the the skills, um, I, I, I well, I, I guess it, it requires kind of skills to be able to to kind of analyze um, lots of information, to uh, to do very strong communication skills. I mean, particularly in in the areas that I work on um, on the on the policy side, very. Um, strong kind of written writing skills, written communication skills, um, ability to build and form relationships. So a lot of the work is influencing and you know persuading other people that <laughs> that they should do what you're you're advocating for. So um, uh, you know ability to to build relationships and networks. Um, I would say are some of the some of the main skills. But you know a passion for the issues is is probably the most important thing because. It can be, um, you know, some of these things require require a lot of, uh, sort of ongoing work over a long period. So it's important to be doing something that you're you're enthusiastic and, and passionate about and that you believe in. Thank you so much again for just talking a bit more about, um, you know, what I just asked about uh, the background in which people usually come from when going into this work. It's super interesting. Um, how diverse the prior work or, you know, like the prior background can be when going into this line of work and like you mentioned, who it attracts. So I think that's just so wonderful to have such a diverse group of people um, working towards like goals like these. So again, thank you so much for expanding on that. No worries. All right. So, um, we're going to be moving on to our main questions, and the first of it, which would be, has the pandemic caused any loss of attention towards issues faced by children prior to the pandemic, and if so, how? Um, okay, that's a good question. Um, let me just make a note and let me think about that. So in terms of loss of attention, I mean, firstly, I think it's important to recognise that it is um, it, it, it is very apparent that the pandemic has had very particular and in many cases quite acute impacts on uh, on children and particularly on children from the most disadvantaged backgrounds. And, and I mean that in all contexts, whether that is, you know, in in wealthy countries or globally, in terms of children from um, children who live in the most deprived and, and challenging circumstances, particularly those in living in situations of conflict or displacement. Um, so, it, so I think one sort of headline of the pandemic is that it has massively increased inequalities, um, and that's due to the you know the, the impacts of COVID itself. But but mostly when it comes to children, because we know that children are least affected by the actual disease, but um, it's mostly in terms of the the second what we call the secondary impacts. So the fact that 
you know, was widespread school closures. Um, and that has affected children globally because most countries have imposed school closures. But it, of course, has affected those children who are unable to access online learning, um, who have been forced to go out to work, who have had to, you know, care for care for siblings, um, who perhaps been confined with um, with in abusive households. It's affected those those children the most. So it has had, you know, really you know, wide ranging impacts on children, which perhaps weren't necessarily anticipated at the start of the pandemic when, you know, the, the, the main focus was on the, the immediate health impacts and, you know, understandably so. But I think that the policies used to respond to the pandemic have unavoidably had, you know, and, well, not unavoidably, but had, had certainly had, um, had widespread implications for children. Um, in terms of whether whether it has um, diverted or um, you know distracted people from from some of the issues, I think that it is it, it it is definitely true to say that progress in many areas, I mean globally and nationally, um, on areas such as um, well education, but particularly you know um, uh, education for girls, has been put back. Uh, and that there is emerging evidence that 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 is the case. Um, that the, you know we, we know that globally there are gender gaps in in education. That girls, particularly at secondary, you know, high school level, are are less likely to attend school and and drop out at, at higher rates than boys. Um, that has been uh, amplified by the um, by the pandemic, and and it. it it does appear to be that there is there is a, a, a reduction in um, you know that that we, we talk about development gains being set back. So you know we we, we like to think that that the that we're you know over time we're making progress on many of these issues that that um, you know we're working towards the the sustainable development goals and, and progress is being made. But we've undoubtedly seen that that the pandemic has set back that progress and 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 will require more more effort and attention to. Uh, to keep those areas moving, um, I think uh, uh, you know it, it's also very true to say that um, that well we've we've had um, economic uh, slowdowns and contractions in many um, what we call donor countries. So many of the countries, um, many of the the wealthier countries, um, you know European countries in the US and so on, um, because they've spent huge amounts on their own recoveries. That that you know economies have been shut down and and their own you know uh, GDP has been has been reduced that puts them in a much weaker position to support other countries um, but also that they are um, often distracted by their own you know their own needs of their own populations so it's it, that that's certainly something that we're seeing I mean I'm, I'm based in the UK um, and the UK government has just announced that they are cutting their foreign aid budget um, and that is definitely having impacts on on many programs around the world which uh, which work on on you know various issues related to children um, so I think there are there are a number of factors and I think that it's um, that that yes there is definitely um, you know that priorities are, are shifting that there are there are very concerning um, you know outcomes of the of the pandemic that that we're getting more and more evidence on um, but it's also true that you know any any major rupture any sort of major moment of change um, is an opportunity um, and it's not you know we, we talk about building back better from the pandemic um, um, you know when there's a big sort of shock to the system whether that's a, <laughs> a war or, a, or or in this case a pandemic there's an opportunity to to, to do things different it, differently it changes um, you know it, it creates more 
opportunity to think differently about about things. Um, so we are we're certainly looking at ways that that we can sort of seize some of those opportunities um, where. You know, again, speaking from the UK, we've um, the, our our quite right wing government has spent huge amounts of money on you know supporting people's people's jobs and incomes over the course of the pandemic. That wouldn't have been it would have been unimaginable um, a, a year or so ago. So, um, you know, that's that's a, created a whole sort of different way of thinking about things and and um, a different realm of what what is possible. Um, so it, it, that's something that we can we can look at in other areas, um, how we can seize the opportunity of the pandemic to kind of build back better. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, thank you again so much. You answered my question completely. Yeah, I think it's so important for um, people to understand how, because like you mentioned, um, when thinking of the problems caused by the pandemic, uh, you know, people obviously immediately think of the health issues. And even though um, those in itself affect, like you mentioned, the most vulnerable populations, there are issues that have been, you know, that have been already there that the pandemic has in a way amplified. Mm. And um, yeah, I think it's important to for people to understand how the pandemic has caused, um, uh, you know, setbacks and um, kind of shifts in progress when addressing these issues. And then um, you also said something that I think um, is not really thought a lot about is how, um, you know, support um, and, you know, funding for these issues, which is something that um, I actually wanted to talk about a little later, but yeah, you mentioned how um, funding for this for these types of issues have also changed because of the pandemic. And yeah, I think it's really important for people to be aware of how um, just the vast effect that this pandemic is having on, you know, so many different areas outside of just the health issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so the next thing I would like to ask is what are some of the difficulties that have come with advocating for access to vaccinations? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. It's not something that I've worked on directly, although Plan has, um, some of my colleagues have, so I can I can speak about it a little. Um, so, so we're not a you know, plan. Plan International isn't a health agency. We don't, um, you know, we don't deliver health programs directly, um, or we're not significant health problem um, health programs, um, and we don't we don't implement vaccination. Um, but it's it is it's something that we see um, a global vaccine um, availability. We see as a as a as a justice a global justice issue. Um, and it is so it is something that we have kind of contributed to joint civil society advocacy on. Um, so we've very much taken a position along with must, much of, uh, of global civil society that um, that vaccines should be available um, on basis of needs and, and equitably um, across and between countries. Um, that isn't <laughs> what we've seen. Um, you know, we've I think we've all seen that. That, that that vaccines have gone to the the wealthiest, um, whether that is globally in terms of the wealthiest countries, or the you know the wealthiest within within countries often, um, and so it's something that I know there is a lot of campaigning around uh, improving vac vaccine equity. 
um, it's it's a, it's a very challenging case to make um, because, as you know, as, we, as I mentioned earlier, when it came to when it comes to you know donor governments, the 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 instinct I suppose of governments is to look after their own populations, and and you know in order to do that, they have actively sought and sought out and and um, uh, and, and bought up as many vaccine supplies as they can in wealthy countries. But we certainly see the you know the fallout of that is that many countries have. Have got incredibly low vaccination rates. I mean, we're seeing that in um, in you know India and Nepal at the moment. Um, you know, and India is a is a uh, is a main manufacturer of of, of vaccines, um, but still the vaccine rates are quite low. Um, in Nepal, the I know the, the the virus is surging there now, and only one percent of the population has had two vaccines. You know, you look at the rates in in wealthier countries, and particularly amongst older people, that that's much much higher. Um, so we certainly see it as a as a major issue, um, but but as you know, as you as you recognise, there is a there is a, a, a strong tension between asking, um, well, you know, calling on on wealthy governments to do the right thing for the global population versus doing the uh, the right thing as um, as governments of their own countries. Um, so there's there is a there's a definite tension. Um, I think that there is a case to be made, um, and you know we're seeing that with the new variants that that there is actually a, a self-interested um, case to be made around that um, making sure that that globally um, uh, vaccines are distributed more equally glo uh, globally because you know if 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 the virus is is free to spread. Um, in large, uh, you know, large populations which are unvaccinated, there's more likelihood of um, of, of new variants arising, which um, which can then obviously come back and um, and pre present risks even to vaccinated populations in wealthy countries. So, um, so that's you know an argument that that we're certainly making. Um, of course, we there there's then an issue and, and something that we're hearing a lot from from uh, our country, our offices in the in our programming countries. Um, but, but of course, we see in in wealthy countries as well is is around even when vaccines are available, there's there's a huge amount of uh, of misinformation and um, and you know scepticism around vaccine um, vaccine uptake, um, and you know a lot of uh, particularly in the context of you know social media and and a lack of you know transparent and and evidence based. Information, um, lack of trust in in authorities. Um, there's there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy, a lot of you know conspiracy theories about vaccines that we that we see. I mean, we see them in the West, but we see them in even more so often in um, in other countries as well. Um, so yeah, it's it's challenging, and you you know the scientists have done their job. They've they've rapidly turned around these these vaccines, incredibly effective vaccines in a very short space of time. But the the you know the the politics and economics of of getting vaccines to everybody to um, to actually um, you know end the pandemic is 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 obviously a something that we're still grappling with. Great, thank you, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think you covered so much, and you know again the goal of this um, project is to help people understand, and I just love how you first of all spoke about kind of the situation where um, wealthier nations had, um, you know, bought uh, all these vaccines and um, how uh, less wealthy nations had less access and, you know, less vaccines. And I think um, a lot of people, when 
when that first happened, or at least when it made it to the news, people were um, surprised. Um, but then uh, kind of what you talked about here is that um, instinct that um, nations sometimes have to like serve their own people first, but then also bringing the aspect of doing what's great for the um, global good. So I think um, that's very important for people to know and to understand, um, especially when um, you know, understand like looking at how um, the government is handling certain situations, considering what's good for um, global good and for public good is very, very important. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. Yeah, and then um, also I loved what you mentioned about the new variants. I think it's not something that uh, people consider, you know, like the new variant argument. And again, like I like I just mentioned, thinking about what's good for the global good. So yeah, I think it's just um, so wonderful about how you addressed uh, kind of uh, the situation and making people understand kind of um, you know, what access to vaccines um, actually does and how important it is to advocate for such issue. All right, so um, the next question I'd like to ask is um, it's something that you kind of already addressed earlier in the first question, but um, how has funding for child advocacy been affected by the pandemic? Um, well, that I, I mean, I can't give you a, I can't give you the figures um, on exactly what's what's happening. I mean, I, I think the the broader picture is that um, you know, over, um, funding at uh, well, in, so so we can talk in 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 a few different ways. So firstly, there is the what we call overseas development assistance, which is the funding that's provided in the form of aid um, from, uh, from from wealthy countries through you know through through human, um, humanitarian and development aid to to poorer countries and that's that's one although not actually the the biggest part of the the sort of resource transfers from 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 richer to poorer countries and that has well, I, I can't actually tell you <laughs> exactly what's happened to it, but there, there, I think there are different dynamics at play. Firstly, there are uh, there are many countries who have tied that um, who, who tie the amount of uh, funding they they give to uh, to to their their national income, um, and as national income in wealthy countries has shrunk, then that has shrunk um, the, the amount that they kind of give um, to programs and um, uh, in in poorer countries has has contracted. Other countries, I mentioned, the UK have um, have deliberately cut that, uh, cut the percentage on top of that because they're, you know, they the argument they make is that they need they need that money at home to look after their own populations. Um, that hasn't been the case everywhere. The UK is a particularly stark example, although they are um, they they do give a, a reasonable, you know, they are quite a big donor, but they you know they have sh they have shrunk their their money. Um, so that's sort of on the in overall in terms of how much has been given, but I think it's also important to recognise that the needs have increased as well. So you know I work on the on the in the humanitarian side, which is the sort of urgent life saving needs. So on the child protection on the on the children's side, that's that's for needs like urgent child protection. Um, but also, you know, response to to gender based violence, to but also things like, you know, um, water and sanitation, shelter, food, and so on. Um, so the 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 the, the sort of urgent humanitarian needs 
um, have increased hugely. I mean, the, the, over the last year, there's been a 40% increase in humanitarian needs um, globally, which is enormous. Um, and that, that means that actually the, the, the funding needs have, have certainly increased. Um, so that, so that's, that's one sort of dimension of it. Um, it's also the case that um, you know funding for for children's rights and for for child protection comes from national government um, budgets. So you know in the case of you know all countries spend on their own sort of social services in terms of you know and their social protection. Um, that has um, you know, well it, there have been different dynamics in different countries, but many countries have have spent a lot to try to support. Um, support families, whether that's through sort of increases in social protection um, or, you know, other other expenditure to try to cushion the impacts of the pandemic. Um, and that that's been very challenging for many countries and many countries haven't, you know, haven't really managed to do that. Um, so that's been a sort of a change. The the funding for your question was about funding for advocacy per se. I can't really comment on that because um, that because most most of the funding goes to um, goes to actual sort of programs that that support um, uh, that support people. Um, that where I, yeah the the actual funding for the advocacy itself I'm I'm not sure. But the um, but but certainly the. The overall funding picture has um, has has well, there have, have experienced some very very big changes um, over the last twelve months. Um, but we're still sort of, I suppose, grappling with because you know some um, the I think I think some change some some changes kind of uh, you know perhaps cancel out others. But but generally, it's a very concerning picture because the needs have increased so greatly. Um, so there is a need to spend more money. Yeah, thank you so much again for um, just expanding so well and explaining, um, you know, the issue itself uh, so thoroughly. Yeah, I think, um, you know, because prior to the pandemic, I know there were, are, you know, several, several projects that um, uh, haven't yet um, met their goal for the amount of funding they need even prior to the pandemic. And so not only, um, you know, with, with the pandemic, not only is there um, a bit of, you know, shift in, in um, the amount of funding, but as you mentioned, um, and I think it's important for people to know, there's been an increase in the issues and um, yeah, the issues that need to be addressed. So I think, um, yeah, that's that's very, very interesting. And again, thank you so much for expanding on it because it's really important for people to understand um, kind of, again, how the pandemic has just um, had a wide array of issues. Um, and impacts outside of just the health, like the direct health implications. Mm. I mean, I think it's it's also important to note be, to to note sort of beyond beyond funding um, that it has also sort of forced, well, encouraged perhaps um, new, well, different perhaps ways of working. So, um, you know, I've I've talked a lot about the global transfers you know from from rich donor countries through their aid budgets to poorer countries um and that's that's important um it's you know it's in, it's important because of the money and it's important symbolically because it shows that um you know the extent to which i think richer countries are standing in solidarity and recognizing that they have a, a responsibility as kind of global citizens to to be um you know contributing um but i think that there's also 
something definitely to be said about the ways people have mobilized and organized and supported each other through this pandemic. Um, and that's on a local level and it's on a national and a, and a global level. So it's not just about the funding. It's not just about governments. It's also about and because but of course, governments are incredibly important because they're the ones that are the duty bearers for, for people's rights. Um, but it's also, you know, it, we've seen a, a lot of a, a huge amount of activity with you know, civil society, local community based groups, mobilizing, organizing, pooling expertise, resources, helping each other out. You know, even in my local community, you know, people mobilizing around supporting their neighbors, you know, cooking meals for for children who are um, uh, who, who, who can't, you know, are, are struggling because they're not getting meals in school. Um, and that's happened all over the world. Um, and, you know, even in, in some of the most challenging contexts that we work in, where typically, you know, in normal times, um, you know, international staff would fly in and um, and and help with the response. That hasn't happened, and but but those responses have still happened. But but it's been local people who've have, who've led them, um, and and have sort of organised to support each other. So I think it's important to recognise aspects like that alongside the you know the funding question is is obviously important because people need funds, but also people have found um, well perhaps not new ways, but but certainly have organized themselves to to help each other and help their their communities. Yeah, thank you so much for speaking on that because you know with this project the goal is kind of to um, allow people to get more information about you know the topics that we're discussing and I think something that's really important about encouraging people to act or you know what encourages people to act is information and so um, I think even for um, just speaking a little bit on like my generation, a lot of a lot of young people that I know said um, prior to the pandemic, you know, they were so unaware. But um, with so many issues being amplified by the pandemic, you know, they hear so much and they're encouraged to act. So, yeah, I think that's such an important aspect that you touched on. So thank you so much for speaking on that. No worries. All right, so the um, last question that we have for today, and again, um, you kind of already addressed this just a little bit, but um, the question is, how have your means of advocacy and communication changed due to the pandemic? And has there been any positive or negative changes due to, you know, just the, um, the obstacles that the pandemic had presented? Yeah, good question. Um, and that's, um, I mean, I know you've sort of asked me about advocacy and I've talked on perhaps broader issues, but I think certainly on the on the kind of practice of advocacy, it's that there, there have been definite changes. And I think that there have been um, there, there have been benefits and, and, and opportunities. Um, I mean, the the main one, I suppose, is has been the fact that that everything's gone virtual. Um, that we haven't been meeting in person, that, you know, all meetings and conferences and events and, um, you know, opportunities to engage with people have all been online. Um, and while that does, of course, require, you know, everyone involved to to have good internet connection, and even my internet connection is not great sometimes, but <laughs> it, it requires everyone to, you know, to, to have access to that those devices um, and, and to the connection, it, it has still broadens I think the opportunities for more voices to be heard than would be in you know in in pre-COVID times when 
um, you know, everything was in person. And, and that's something that, that as plan we have really taken advantage of and particularly being able to to bring together decision makers and children and young people um, much more directly and much um, um, in a much easier and more sort of uh, I suppose sort of horizontal way than we than we had done before. So, you know, take take pre-COVID times when it it has always been a, a focus of plan and and a um, you know a, our goal is to. Uh, is to to help to create space and open, you know, provide platforms for young people to talk on the issues that they are concerned about and to engage directly with decision makers. But, you know, in the in the old days, <laughs> if you like, that would involve, you know, months and months of, of um, you know, preparing risk assessments and, you know, um, you know, preparing preparing young people to travel or to fly to to the UN or to um, you know to donor capitals to go to conferences and all that went with that um, it was only open to a very small number of, of young people um, and, uh, and and you know was a was a big time and cost investment um, but nowadays we do that much more frequently uh, and you know as long as we can get um, a child or a young person to to perhaps a plan office where there's an internet, connection. Uh, I mean, it still requires preparation to make that engagement meaningful for, for everyone involved. Um, so both to prepare children to, to um, you know, to make sure that they're adequately prepared and they understand, um, you know, what the opportunity is, um, and also to, to engage with the, the, you know, politicians, policymakers, decision makers beforehand. As long as that is done, um, you know, connecting them via Zoom or Skype or whatever is, um, is 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 much easier than physically flying someone to it to a location. So there's definitely been a, been opportunities there. Um, at the same time, there have been uh, there have been downsides, um, particularly in terms of the the space for for civil society within some decision making processes. So um, you know, I hear from colleagues who work, um, for example, at the at the UN in Geneva and New York, um, that that many meetings which used to be in, in pre-COVID times used to be open to um, open to, to NGOs, to civil society, to, to my colleagues basically, to, that they would be able to engage directly with decision makers now happen in much, much more kind of closed um, or the particular start of the pandemic happened in much more closed fora. So, um, you know, in some cases space is opened, in other cases um, it, it perhaps is closed. So we need to kind of keep an eye on that and something that, that you know as part of civil society and, and what I mean by that is the you know the, the whole sort of constellation of organizations that exist outside of um, exist outside of, of governments and uh, and the and the UN um, that broader group of organizations of civil society um, need to need to have space to to influence decisions um, to express their views to uh, to bring perspectives to the table that's that's an incredibly important part of the work that we do um, and we need to make sure that we maintain we we constantly advocate for that space to be maintained um, so yeah, it's it's been there. As I said opportunities and challenges. I mean, the, there is undoubtedly something lost in the in the lack of sort of personal relationships that you can build with people in a uh, in you know face to face. You know that's that is important for um, you know that uh, you know it's, it's it's true to say that um, that 
that you can engage with people often better when you can meet them face to face. But that that in itself is quite exclusive because not everyone is in is you know in the right places or has the opportunity to meet um, individual decision makers face to face. So we've we've certainly tried to seize the opportunities that have been created um, through the through the pandemic. Right. Thank you so much um, for, again, just touching on all the different aspects, um, you know, especially considering the um, kind of purpose of this project that I'm doing. Um, I love how you spoke about the sort of door that has been opened with allowing people's voices to be heard. And um, even me, myself, I've um, experienced kind of this this positive effect from the pandemic it it has allowed me to you know do things like this where um i'm just more familiar with um zoom calls and every and you know video chats and i can do something like this communicating with someone who's you know far far away and being able to discuss topics like this but also um like you mentioned in terms of just advocacy and like allowing my voice to be heard even um within plan itself like the YLA that happened the youth leadership academy that was a program that I probably never would have been able to done had it not been virtual so I think yeah I think it's so important that people um are aware of you know this opportunity that has been created through the pandemic and this platform that they've now been given to speak on these issues and um you know speak and let their voices heard on topics that that um they find important yeah good to good to hear that you've been uh, <laughs> you've been taking advantage of it as well yeah thank you and then also i just wanted to mention how yeah like you like um, spoke on different aspects. So again, you touched on the difficulties um, and like the challenges that um, the pandemic has presented, which I think is also important for um, people to know so and to be aware of. So um, yeah, I think, and again, you mentioned how um, the platform that has now been created um, due to the pandemic is something that kind of, um, you you guys still advocate to maintain and allowing people and like the general public to to speak and to have a voice on this these issues so um you know know letting people know that they have the opportunity to let their voices be heard is very important so thank you again for touching on that you're very welcome all right well thank you so much that was the last question that i had for you um again thank you so much Miss Wright, for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with me today. Thank you so much for for inviting me to um, to speak to you. Um, I hope I hope this has been helpful um, and and good luck with your project. Um, it sounds really interesting. Um, and yeah, do let me know how you how you get on. Um, and and yeah, thank you thank you for having me. Yes, thank you so much again. Well, this brings us to the end of our interview. Uh, thank you again, Miss Wright, and please remember to share this episode with others and remember to support the rights and protection of children everywhere. Thank you so much.